Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. My name is Victoria Stapleton. I'm the Director of School and Library Marketing, and I am very pleased to welcome to our episode Zoraida Cordova. She's written a lot of books, which I have enjoyed, and they were published, as we say in the business, by another house. But then we bought that house, so now the books are ours, and I am happy. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry about that. That's just how we roll at Little Brown. Among her books are Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, which we did not buy, but okay. Um, she's written a number of Star Wars books. Also, Bruja Born and other series. Her book with us is Incendiary, with its follow-up Illusionary, which is coming up in the spring of 2021. I am stumbling over all of this because she is the co-editor of Vampires Never Get Old. And I'm going to express something to everybody in the publicity of the podcast, which I've said in public before, but it's okay. It's recorded now. I don't get the blood sucking. (laughs) And I have never got the blood sucking. And we all know what else Little Brown publishes. So that's a problem for me. But we're not going to talk about blood suckers today. And you are not going to explain blood sucking to me. Many people have tried. I still don't get it. (laughs) That's totally fine. I I really do not. But we are going to talk about Incendiary. I kind of am super obsessed with this book. And it, it hits all my sweet spots. Prior listeners of the podcast will know that I am a divinity school dropout. And my PhD dissertation was on trees and death and how we take our ancestors with us rather than our children because our ancestors are our passports. And you can always make new children. It, it's <laughs> Sorry, kids. It's true. This book is rooted in thoughts and reconsiderations of the Spanish Inquisition, which is truly a rich history of politics and moralities and religions in myths in the very best possible use of the word myth, which is not lie, but rather the most profound truth we cannot speak. Zoraida has created Puerto Leones and this character, Renata, and these concepts of memory and ownership and truthfulness and lying and layer upon layer of world building goodness. So I'm probably like two minutes into the introduction. I have not let Zoraida speak, but we'll let her say hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I I just, I'm sorry. I'm going to just really try to keep it uh, on the low squee side and let you do a lot of speaking and talking to me about these things because I could go all day about the ethics of memorials and physical markers and the ethics of memory and the ethics of institutionalizing our memories in plaques and statues and grave sites and mile markers and newspapers and Twitter, which is forever. Don't let them tell you Twitter is not forever. It is forever. Um, Mm -hmm. So let us dig into it. Fantasy is a rich genre. It is, it is a gorgeous farmland of soil that allows for a wide range of world-building possibilities. You have chosen to anchor incendiary, as I said, in the Spanish Inquisition. What attracted you to this setting? And how did you then work away from it to create Puerto Leones? And, and did you think about competing versions of Spain that were present during the Inquisition and the period around that? So Leave much. Oh, God. Well, there's so much to go over, right? Because the Spanish Inquisition didn't 
happen all at once. I felt like it was building slowly to the point where Isabella Castile was started instituting all of these things. And it went on for years. It wasn't like, oh, here's a summer where we committed all these atrocities. It was a legacy that was that happened for, for centuries. And and it, it wasn't like all of the the people who would not con- convert to Catholicism, Jewish people, Muslim people, um, Romani people, like everybody, they would still argue. I have these, I bought these books. Um, I try to get references specifically from Jewish perspectives because it's one thing to read about the Spanish Inquisition from a Catholic priest. It's another one to read about it from a rabbi or somebody in the faith. And that to me is very important because who is telling the historical context is important. Even though I did not end up using I wanted to create an allegory, an analog to the Spanish Inquisition, but I did not want to use anybody's actual religion, Mm -hmm. right? Which is why the Moria, I created them as a separate kingdom with their own religion, uh, and I did my very best to make it seem not uh, not a mirror to Judaism, because that to me would, would have been disrespectful doing that translation. And then, then there's the competing religion, which is the religion of Puerto Leones, which is uh, a monotheistic, yeah, I guess it would be patriarchy, <laughs> a patriarchal God, right, who requires certain things. So that, I, I grew up in a Catholic ha- household, so that to me uh, was a closer a closer analog as I'll ever get to Christianity in my work. Mm-hmm. I create religions in most of my fiction. In the Brooklyn Burha series, I created their brand, the the sisters' brand of witchcraft, and all of the gods that they pray to. In Incendiary, I also created the two religions, and then another religion when we meet another group of people in book two. So I've already gone off on a tangent, <laughs> but the thing that attracted me to the Spanish Inquisition was I'm from Ecuador, so coming from a country that was colonized by Spain, I feel like I I'm always trying to interrogate where the beliefs that are considered Ecuadorian and the traditions that are considered Ecuadorian, what if that is rooted in Spain? And so I've always been attracted to asking those questions and trying to figure that out through writing. And alternately, uh, when it came to incendiary, it was more of a question of what are you willing to do in order to save the people that you love? And if you've been used as a weapon your entire childhood, are you allowed to redeem yourself? And then the world sort of fell around the character of Renata, which was hard to write somebody like that because most of my most of my books pre, uh, before Incendiary have been more of that Buffy humor where it's, you know, doom and gloom and creatures are about to attack us, but people are telling jokes constantly. Whereas Renata is a very difficult headspace. She's a girl who... Uh, she was taken as a child from her village or the woods where she lived, and she was taken to the palace to be used because even though her people were considered um, heretics and even though her people were consi- like magic was considered bad and illegal in this in this in the Puerto Leona society, the king still wanted to access that power and use it for himself and figure out a way to manipulate the power. So he wasn't okay with the people or the kingdom. He was okay with the power. And that is what incendiary is about in many, many ways. 
That is really an eternal or an enduring question, isn't it? Is it about people as human beings on their own or as is it people as assets or a collection of usables? Right. One of the things that fascinated me thinking about this, I, I mean, I began at the beginning with digging up the grave because not even the body is sacred because it's still an asset and thinking about Renata as a, as a body that has an asset. She's just not dead yet. Mm -hmm. We live in a time right now where we're really thinking about, and teens, many teens are confronting a lot of discussions about competing histories, competing meanings. And, and it's a confusing time for teens anyway, thinking about where they fit into the world and how they will remake the world in their own images. And, Renata's sense of personhood, her her need to have a personhood seems even, even more pungent to me because she hasn't been allowed that or that field of connections, really, that make right. her a person. What is her community, really? Yeah, because she is, yeah, she's taken back after she's kidnapped and used as a weapon, sort of pampered because they don't, they don't, you know, she's still, she's a seven-year-old girl at the time, so she is she's treated like a doll, right? That can steal memories. And, and so it's, it's sort of like she's being tricked and she doesn't even know the extent of her powers yet because she was taken from her family before she could develop her power. After she's taken back by her people, the Moria, the, the rebels that are left, that is when she becomes a weapon again because she's trained to become a rebel and she's trained to sort of feel an eternal guilt for having been used, which is is really complicated. And this book could have been like 600 pages. <laughs> I would be happy with that, I'm not going to lie. But there was, there was some concern about the length that it already has. Um, and so I, I think that it's a, it's a heavy situation and you can't, you can't just say like, I'm gonna write a YA fantasy about war and, uh, and trauma and have it not be extremely long because it's not like you can raise that scene that issue that moment and then just drop it and move on your will world building is very complete you mentioned earlier all the research that you did uh, mm -hmm. reading things from the point of view of catholic priests reading things from the point of view of jewish people um, i know you didn't use explicitly those sources in your writing but it all goes into that for lack of a better term that that soil yeah from which that came up. You've hinted at some of the values or the principles that you wanted to discuss through the vehicle of the story in the person of Renata. I guess my question is, can you talk to us a little bit more about the transformative work you did? What was attracting to you? What was the morality attracting you to the story and why those sources and then transforming those sources into your story? For me, the morality is how do you do the right thing when you don't know who you are what you believe in. Obviously, Renata believes that her people deserve dignity uh, and they, they deserve a place to be. But they, even though they live in the ruins of what used to be their kingdom, and for the most part, the Moria have been exp either expelled from the kingdom, murdered, or, or they live in hiding because I, I wanted to make sure that the world felt like it's not something that you can see on people, right? Their magics are mental and sensory, right? Somebody can steal memories, somebody can read minds, they can create illusions, or they can influence emotion into action. And so 
the most volatile one would be how to lose your memories. Who are you without memories? And even though Renata technically has all her memories intact, she has been stealing memories from people, hundreds of thousands of people, and they live in her mind. So who is she when she has the memories of hundreds and thousands of others living inside of her mind? Uh, Can you be yourself? Can you allow yourself to have uh, emotional connections? I give her that. I do give her that because otherwise that would be cruel. Uh, when there is a very handsome rebel commander <laughs> there, obviously. But who who is she supposed to be? And and I think that I really love redemption stories. Mm-hmm. So having to figure out what she has to atone for, and is she supposed to atone for something that that she did without her complete consent because she was a child being used as a weapon? And so it goes back to that question. And who gets to answer that for her? And so both the duology is really about getting Renata to a place that she accepts not just who she is, but she figures out what her power is supposed to do. And everything that she has been taught might have been a lie, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because there was so much history lost. So she has the memories of thousands of people, but at the same time, her kingdom doesn't have memory. And her kingdom's name is literally the Spanish word for memory. So how does a group of people keep going when their entire past has been erased? Mm-hmm. And that that threat of colonization and erasure is, is part of the Latin American narrative, which I, again, think about a lot. Well, there's two different ways I could go. We could talk about original sin versus non-original sin and Renata's guilt. But I think what's more fruitful is to press forward on these competing or I think about Renata and all her memories. And oddly, I know this is terrible. This seems out of left field, but I think about Bishop Barclay. He was a philosopher in the 18th century and he's the one who came up with, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? And I think about Renata and her brain with all of these memories, if there's no one there to understand what the memory means, does the memory really exist? Right. If Renata's not able to make appropriate connections between her memories and those other memories, does Renata really exist? In what sense? Is she, she's a weapon in stealing the memories, but being overwritten so many times, thinking about a young person who is sitting in a physical space, say, I was just listening to a podcast about Onyate's foot and the, the removal of the Onyate statue, in one of the Onyate statues in Albuquerque, New Mexico, thinking about physical landscape that she, and the, the personal meanings that her childhood may have to her. She may not know what that is because it's given to her by adults. And then the memories, just the exterior of her world, as well as the interior of her world. Do you hear Renata? walking through spaces and thinking about what she's looking at and how she feels about what she's looking at. And are those her thoughts or are those memories of what happened in that place from people she's stolen from? God, that is a weird question. I am so sorry. No, no, no. I think that I spent a lot of time thinking about, so Renata has this thing called the gray in her mind, which is this like this, this vault where she has put a lot of these memories in. 
there's a, a, a science to this. I think it's called like memory palaces. Mm-hmm. That was a little bit of an inspiration. I didn't go too deeply into that because I don't, again, like I, 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 I like to be inspired by things, but I, I want to, at the end of the day, create my own mm-hmm. version of whatever exists as opposed to just placing something in my book. So the creation of the gray is this, this vault that keeps all of her memories. And sometimes it is like a survival mechanism that she has used in order to not see all the memories all the time and be overwhelmed by them. But the problem is, is that some of her own personal memories have are in that vault as well. Mm. So sometimes the memories escape and it does feel to her like she is living them uh, and seeing them. And it could be jarred by returning to a landscape, right? So the, the book opens, chapter one, she's in a place called Esmeraldas. And she she sort of has this moment where she is in this the square facing the church and she remembers being there. But it's not her memory. It belongs to someone else. And they were celebrating a feast or whatever and bur- like burning some trees and stuff like that as like um like a Christmas type of type of thing. She she has this conscious understanding that I've been in this place, I've, I've walked these streets, but this is not my memory. And that happens in book two as well. And, and, and we sort of see it develop a little bit more, but it's a curious thing to, to see her. It's also called the gray because she sees, she sees everything. Like she sees color all at once. And then it just, it, it becomes leached of color because it's not, it's not real. It's not hers. Mm-hmm. That's where that comes from. So many questions. Now I'm thinking about even another avenue of thinking about this book, because we do think about teens with their parents. Thinking about, you know, you mentioned being raised with a connection to the Catholic faith. I was raised with a connection to a different faith and had very specific reactions and very specific decisions about it, as we all do. But I'm thinking about Renata also, which is very relatable as a typical teen in that she is given beliefs, structures, moral values, moral systems in which to act I don't know that we can really okay that I was a philosophy major at one point I'm gonna stay out of that rabbit hole (laughs) really gonna try to stay out of that rabbit hole but it is very thinking about a teen trying to decide do I believe what my parents believe is what is what is meaningful to my parents meaningful to me and I think about because we know adults read YA non-YA people read YA and I have an entire soapbox about adult colonization of teen literature, but that is a soapbox for another day. Uh-huh. Um, thinking about the adults reading it, being able to let go of their teens to have their own ideas and values, because Renata is not simply a weapon to the king; she's also an asset to her to the rebels. Uh-huh. How did you, as you were thinking about her, and we talked about identity, as you were thinking about Renata, did you think about these again yourself? Did you negotiate within your own morality, letting go or keeping? Did you, re- did you rethink any of the values that you had? Or did you relitigate anything with your own personal history as a teen? I try to keep myself out of a lot of my narratives, but it's difficult to not make the comparison where I, so I grew up Catholic, I was baptized and had my first communion, but I refused to get confirmed because I was like, at this point, I'm like, okay, you made me do this. You made me do that. But now I'm 13 and there is no way yeah. that you are making me 
go another step further into this religion that I do not connect with. And I'm actively rioting against, right? And that's when I, that's when I became a teen witch. <laughs> And discovered, you know, uh, Silver Silver Raven Wolf and all of her Wicca books. I think that the main thing that I operate when writing teenage girls or teenage characters is that I am consciously aware that I'm still writing for teens and not for adults because Mm -hmm. YA fantasy, to me, needs to operate with the understanding that when you're a teenager, you're actively rebelling against everything that you have ever grown up with. Mm -hmm. And that rebellion is what is being echoed in these these high fantasy worlds, um, or they should be, right? This is where we are diverging from the world we've known to the world we don't know. And the world we don't know is separate than from our parents, it's separate from our communities. And what does that look like? For Renata, she's sort of been, she hasn't been forced to stay with the Moria. I, I think that, I want to believe that if she wanted to run away, she could have because she has all of these skills now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only skill she doesn't have is sailing. So I guess that's difficult when you live on a, a continent uh, surrounded by the sea only. But I feel like she could have figured it out. So I think that the reason she stays with the rebels is because she has nowhere to go. And she has made this cause her own, but she questions on whether or not the cause is because she's in love with the leader, with her commander, uh, or if it's because she truly needs to have atoned for something. And those two things are different. They're different. And so her, her rebellion is, is figuring out what she is actually going to stand for. But I don't think that I, I don't think that I put any of myself in that because when I, when I try to create a character, I do all writers, no matter what, consciously or sub, like it's part of our subconscious we write the people that we want to get to know mm-hmm. and unless you're writing about like a serial killer or something like that <laughs> and even then like who knows uh there are those there are some YA books like that but for me Renata was Renata and I just had this person that I needed to to answer answer all, all of her questions and to to get her a resolution that felt satisfactory to what she needed and wanted. I guess I've been tap dancing around a lot of these questions because I cannot think of Renata as guilty. Mm-hmm. I really yeah. cannot. Yeah. And she's not. And I think that I, I hope that that's the conclusion that readers come to. Yeah. Because I, I really do th- struggle with this, this morality because I really do think about the world that adults impose on children through their choices and how all children and then moving into teens have to have to think about what they're going to be in the world that they did not have a choice about. So the world building is very pungent in terms of its physical setting. And most of the world building is in between Renata's ears because of the memories and how she's navigating them. Another world is, you know, in the revision with your editor, um, who I would have said, 600 pages? Yes, let's go for eight. <laughs> uh, but that's just me. But then letting it go into the hands and minds of your readers so that really Renata becomes one of their memories. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about that, how much room did you want to give to your readers in the story? 
a good counter example is I don't think George R. R. Martin, and yes, I have tried people, God, I have tried, um, <laughs> does not leave room for his readers in the story. It's every single detail. Other writers leave more space for their readers to, to create the story along with it. Uh -huh. Given how psychological the book really is, how much space did you want to leave for your readers to experience the story and create along with you? In it. Not in a fan fiction sense, but in a meaningful sense. I don't know. I That's hard for me to answer because I feel like no matter what I try to do, the reader is, is going to come in with their own views, their own life experiences, their own biases. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I can never plan for. Mm -hmm. So I... I, I don't want to say that I don't think about the reader because I, I do in different ways, but I think that that's something that the reception or, or where the reader fits in the story, that's something that I don't, I don't know if I consciously plan. I know writers who just, they can't read reviews of any, <laughs> I'm, I'm not talking Kirkus. Uh, oh God. No, they know. They know. I've, they've yeah. seen my emails, but even teen readers, they can't read. I mean, my first thing to all authors is stay off Goodreads, stay off Goodreads, stay off, <laughs> stay off. But even meeting teen readers are going to, you know, if they do school visits or they do library visits or, or festivals or whatever, meeting their teen readers, they, they don't over, get over the discomfort that somebody else has taken control of the story. Mm -hmm. You seem very well adjusted about this part. <laughs> That the revision is constantly going on through the reading by by readers. Uh, readers not named Zoraida Cordova. So <laughs> at what point did you get, was that an easy adjustment for you to make as a writer earlier in your career? Or did you have to? Well, I, I think that I learned, I learned it early on. My first book came out in 2012. And so I feel like I've been doing this long enough. Incendiary was my 13th novel that was published. Because uh, I write romance novels as well under a different name, and so those the volume of those are. We'll are talk about that later. Faster. Uh, <laughs> because of that, I have I think that I've trained myself to not go into that dark place where I I look for the reviews and, and the outs, external critique. Yeah, I you know I'm not gonna lie. I, I I do think that when I get the bad reviews, like the Carcass review for Incendiary, which is like awful. Um, I, 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 that really bothers me because I know that the reader did not think about any of the things that I was trying to do, but I can't control that. So I think I just let it go. And, and because it, it's, there's not, I can't get into a fight with somebody and make them see what, what was, what I, what I did or all of my thought process for decisions that my character was making. I can't explain that to anybody. And so it's sort of like the book exists by itself uh, and I can't defend it. You know, I can't say this is my intention because my intention doesn't matter if, if the reader isn't reading closely, right. Um, or reads something that, you know, I've seen not for my, like for my own books and my friends books, I'll see reviews where I'm like, that is literally not a scene in the book. I don't know what book you read, but I think that sometimes people just, Re either they read so fast they create something or like they skim over and then they, they it, it gets warped in their mind. I don't know. As a writer in 2020, 
with social media giving everybody access to me, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that I I love connecting with my readers and 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 all that stuff. Thankfully, I have had wonderful experiences with with readers who are like, I love your books. I like I, I love what you were trying to do. I love what you did with this character. And so that feedback I appreciate. And I've not gotten people reaching out to me to be purposely uh, mean. <laughs> but I've learned, I think it's because we are writers in the, the age of social media, we've had to sort of switch gears and figure out how to deal with the fact that our reviews are constantly in our faces. So even if I don't go to Goodreads, like the reviews will be tweeted at me. And, you know, Incendiary was picked for two book boxes. So that's thousands of readers who were tagging me on Instagram and they have these beautiful pictures with the book covers and the special editions. And so I have no choice, but I could, I could also not look at it, but if somebody tags you in a bad review, like that's still in your face, but that is also an exchange for having my book distributed to thousands of thousands Mm -hmm. of people. Uh, And so that's a tricky part of being an author now. It is. Um, I do think about reader revision and I also think about reader ownership of characters, but we'll go back to Renata for a moment. Uh, Yeah, I'm reading the whole Patrick Rothfuss thing right now and I'm just like, people, come on. Uh, (laughs) It's interesting seeing the, the, the reader revision because I see people saying like, I love this character and if Renata is not with this character, then what's the point? And I, and like, and I'm like, Oh, so there are already expectations set up for book two. Right. And I know some people are going to be upset when they read illusionary, but I can't control that. (laughs) No, you can't control that. And I, I know when I was younger, I really would just get very annoyed um, that things didn't turn out as I wanted them to. And it takes a while as a reader in a certain psychological maturity as a reader to open yourself to the possibilities of the book the author gives you rather than what you wanted from the author. It's just a a reorienting of the balance. But you as a writer and an experiencer of Renata, when did you feel you knew her enough? Or do you know her enough? When did you feel you were ready to let her be within that set of pages and let those pages go out? I think that it probably wasn't until the, this book had so many revisions uh, before it went to uh, Disney. The other house. The other house. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Little Brown has always been my dream house, so that was very fortuitous. I want you to be happy with us, and I want you to be happy with me, so we'll continue on with that part. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it, it, it it takes me about five drafts to really feel like I know a character that was true for Renata and that's that's true for my other book Wayward Witch like it took so many drafts and partially it's because you know I'm a working writer that's writing multiple books a year uh so maybe if I was not burned out I would probably have an easier time or maybe not maybe this is just my chaotic process of I have to write all the wrong things before I write the right thing. Yeah. There are writers who really, they discover through the writing process. That's how they do it. They don't know. It's very organic. I've known writers who are very architectural about their process. This is the character that they want to explore. This, I'm going to put the character into this plot. Some people are very plot architecture. And then some people, it's extreme, for lack of a better term, very biological and organic about discovery. And it sounds like you're more on the organic 
self-discovery. Oh, I'm a super plotter, but Ooh. I still let the plot, I, I let everything be organic if the plot isn't working. My process is, doesn't make sense, I think, because at one point I plot very, I make very, very detailed plots and charts and post-its and all of these things, all of these tools. Mm-hmm. And then I allow myself to switch gears if something isn't working and I have to redo everything again because everything is, is sort of shifting. One of my really good friends, she only plots every six chapters because she knows that she's going to get to the end. But for me, I have to see, I have to see the end before I can say, oh, this is the wrong way. Yeah. So I can't do the, I can't do the headlights writer thing, you know, like six, like only a few chapters ahead. I have to, I have to see the whole entire route before I can like reroute, which is again, chaotic and takes a lot of time, but it's, it's what I have. <laughs> well, I, I think this is such a rich novel that really, it's such a, it's a story. Honestly, I'm going to go reread it again. Uh, <laughs> day, Honestly, no, because it is all these sweet spots of competing myths, which are really truths. It's about memory and world building and world unbuilding and weapons and guilt and innocence and love and faith and death and heresy and desecration and sacrifice. It's all of those amazing things that you want in a super good novel for a smart person of any age. And then it's just, <laughs> you know, it's got beautiful language as well, which as a final question, I do have to ask you. Did you read some of this aloud to yourself while you were writing and say to yourself, God, that's good. <laughs> I do have moments where I'm like, oh, that's, that's tight. That's tight. <laughs> <laughs> because I uh, like to read aloud to myself. And I was reading this one aloud to say, oh, that's, that feels good to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think about language a lot. I, my very first workshop was actually at the National Book Foundation Writing Camp mm. in 2004 and five. Some of my very first workshop teachers were Cornelius Edie and Jacqueline Woodson mm-hmm. and Norma Fox Mazer. And so I learned from the literal best of how to look at a sentence. Every time I write, I can hear Cornelius Edie telling me, telling the entire class that you have to trim the fat, right? And that's how he writes poems. I think that having poetry as very early... I think I was, I was 16 and 17 when I went to the, the camp. This was all ages. They don't have a camp anymore, mm. um, unfortunately, because uh, the director that came over got rid of it because it was like, a free camp? No way. <laughs> we could put that money somewhere else. It's very tragic. But having that poetry background, I think, really, I think all writers should read poetry because I think it helps uh, when we're thinking of cadence and how things sound on the page. Uh, I could talk to you for hours and hours, and I hope you enjoyed yourself on the podcast today. Yes. (laughs) Um, Friends, readers, smart persons everywhere. Incendiary is on your bookshelves now. It should be in whatever reading format you enjoy, because you should read it, and you should read it now, and you should read it often. Illusionary will be on shelves in spring of 2021, and you can find Zoraida online. Be nice to her on the Twitter machine, or I will come after you with one of my many anonymous Twitter accounts. I do have them. I mean, sometimes you need to swear extra hard. Um, This has been Victoria Stapleton for the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. Thank you for being with us today, Zoraida. Thank you for having me. We will metaphorically see you next time.